God, as we get into your word this morning, we would just pray, God, that you would use it. Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and, and it would transform our lives. And we trust that that's what you're going to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. As, as Stan said, we got to go to uh, Heaven Fest last night or yesterday with a bunch of kids. And, and it's interesting as I'm watching certain kids show up this morning, their eyes are kind of half drooped because we didn't get home till 11 or 12 or 1 or whatever it was. And but what a glorious time. And when I, when I experience that, I'm always... I, Heaven Fest is in a field. And you can look back as the field has a little bit of an angle to it. And you can turn around and you can look back at... They're getting numbers somewhere around between 25 and 38,000 people were there last night. By the way, that's a lot of people to put in a field. Okay? But you can look back and, and during the nice loud headbanging concerts, you see people just... And, and no, I mean, it was just fantastic. The music was loud. There was all this energy. It was just wonderful. But then they, they cut everybody loose. They said, you know, the concerts are over. And now we're going to do what we call the sacred assembly. We're not going to shine the lights up on the stage so much. And all the people that have been praying throughout the day, you can see them kind of up there on the stage praying. And you can't really see the people that are talking and playing. They're just kind of up there. And you expect that everybody would be gone by then. Or not everybody, but a number of people, they were there to, to listen to the music and, and get that adrenaline. I mean, the music was just incredible. But as I look back after it, it's dark still. But you just look back and there's still 20,000 people probably. And you just look, you, their hands are raised, they're singing, they're worshiping God. And then, and then they just shut off the music and said, you know what, we're just going to read they take out the word and they just go through passage after passage after passage about what it means to live for Christ. Passage after passage after passage. And then after the word sinks in you a little bit more, then you and your youth groups or families or whoever's there, we worship a little bit more. And we took communion together. But when I see that, I'm always reminded of this scene that you see in Revelation. Always, and, and if you turn with it, to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and I'm going to actually read that, but here's the picture. No, I'm just going to read it. I think it, it's, the picture's there. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Or, <laughs> did I just say that? <laughs> wow, that was a funny slip. That came back from somewhere. Okay, in one of the seats somewhere, there's a black Bible. Okay, Revelation in the very back of the Bible, just before the index, chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes and swinging palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's the picture that you see with these people just just worshiping and they're just crying out to God. And it's a fantastic thing to experience. And with that number of people in America, you know that half the nations on earth at least are probably represented here. And if it's not, then you have every different shape of person. You have the tall, the skinny, the whatever. Okay, you have every different kind of people. You have people with piercings coming out of the top of their heads and the top of their heads tattooed. And t- I mean, you just have everybody here just crying out to God and being thankful that God accepts them the way they are. It is a magnificent event. And that's not the message, that's just heaven fest. We are in Genesis. But this is going to tie in, actually. God is gracious. Um, as I was walking around, I like to just observe people. I was walking with, I guess it was Peter, somebody I was walking with, and I said, you know what, I just love to, to walk around and just watch people and just see souls and wonder, okay, what's going on with that group? And, and there'll be a group and they'll be talking about something or, or if you see somebody kind of straggling off on their own. And what we're going to talk about today really does somewhat tie in to this experience so hold on to that thought as we get moving so we teach through a book of the bible we're in genesis and we are finishing up genesis chapter 9 this morning and those of you who have read ahead um, should have the question in your mind why did god let this piece of scripture actually get written why didn't, why didn't God send the editor, Moses, and take a blue line and just scratch through this black eye on Noah's life? Why is that? Well, let's read it. We're going to start in verse 18. The sons of Noah, so we're in chapter 9, verse 18, and we're going to get to the end of the chapter today. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So in the last couple of weeks, we've seen this is like a recreation event. We kind of have a... We, we don't call Noah a second Adam. But, but that's kind of what's happened here. God went and, and his judgment went over the earth. And now we have this second Adam. And so from the loins of Noah, the entire population of the earth has been repopulated. Every one of us kind of are brothers and sisters. When it, you push this tree far enough back, we end up in Noah. Okay. When we get to uh, verse 20, this is where that black eye starts. Noah began to... Be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told the two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
Okay, let's just get the picture here. Noah goes out and he starts again farming. He builds a vineyard. It takes a long time to get a vineyard going. He creates a vineyard. It makes grapes. He plucks the grapes. He makes some wine. And he enjoys it. He enjoys it. And he drank too much. He gets drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. Now, interestingly, as you read this, there's, there's no real call to, to Noah here that says, Uh-oh, he sinned. It, it doesn't even focus on this piece in Noah's life. It simply says, he got drunk, he lay uncovered in his tent, and then comes the point of the passage. So, as we read this in context, that piece of the passage is not the focal point. But, it doesn't matter what you read, there's, there's this incident right now in Noah's life. What happened? And there's this speculation and that speculation about... The, the, the theologians want to try to take this event and, and say that Noah... Um, was a picture of Christ and, and the wine is the wrath of God and, and Ham is, is like the, the bad people that crucified him and, and on and on and on trying to make some kind of allegory out of this passage because it, it's a bit of a black eye. And so the scientists come along and say, okay, well, the theological part, that, that's obviously not going to work because that's an allegory. We know better than to do that. So, um, oh, fermentation couldn't happen before. And so Noah just didn't know. He... He let that wine sit there for a long period of time and thought it was just grape juice and went and had some. And Okay. Noah got drunk. That's what it says. That's what it means. There's, there's nothing else there. But the passage doesn't focus there. We do a little bit of uh, disservice to the text, though, to go in and say something about drinking too much wine. We're going to spend all of about eight seconds there. Ready? The clear teaching of Scripture says don't get intoxicated with spirits that's what it says and it goes on to say if you do there's this automatic consequence it happens right now the ancients used to call it the blood of the earth (laughs) and remember we're not supposed to drink the blood okay they go on and make this big picture about the blood of the earth and how if you drink of that there's this consequence right away that's interesting getting intoxicated is a sin Right now, righteous man Noah was drunk, laying naked in his tent. Something went wrong. Okay? Now, let's think about Noah first for a minute. We start back in Genesis 6, verse 8, that says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God calls Noah. God tells Noah, build this ark. And it says, Noah walked with God and he obeyed everything God commanded him. God brings Noah on the ark. God sustains and protects Noah and brings him through judgment. The judgment on the earth. God calls Noah out of the ark. All of these things. And what is Noah remembered for? When we push into different prophets in the New Testament, what is Noah known for? Is he known for getting drunk and laying uncovered in his tent? He's known as, he's the righteous man, the holy Noah, the the man that, that walked with God and obeyed everything he commanded. That's what we remember about Noah. Not this event in the end. So why is it that God put this in there? If you look at Romans chapter 15 verse 4, 
It says this. It says, all of these things have been written for you to learn a lesson. It says it again in 1 Corinthians 10. These things that have happened that have been written are for us to, to glean from. And in the Romans verse in 15, it says, so that we might have hope. So that's what this is written for. We see God again, and for weeks now we've seen God has this plan. God has this plan and God is executing this plan. And so when we focus back on the actual context of this passage, it is not about Noah laying upside down drunk in his tent. It's about what happened with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We see the tree over here. God is showing us, here comes the peoples. We're going to populate the earth. But he's also telling us, you know what, after the flood, God did not come and just take a, 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 what do you call those things, wet wipes? God didn't just take a wet wipe and just wipe it over the earth and clean out all sin. Yes, God exercised judgment on the earth, but he did not purge it from sin. When God took Noah and his family out of the ark, sin was alive and well. But God still has a plan, and he's executing it. But as I was thinking yesterday, as I'm walking around, I thought of this piece, and I had to add it in here this morning. Has anyone... Just think of the shame that Noah's sitting here. When he wakes up and shakes his head off, and somebody tells him what happened, he's probably a little... little egg on the face, walking a little humped over. I mean, he's... That's embarrassing. And I started thinking, you know... How many times, and like as a Christian, those of you who are Christians think of this, those of you who aren't Christians think of it too. How many times in your life have you been upside down drunk figuratively in your tent uncovered and somebody comes in and sees it and you're just shamed? And there's all kinds of ways that this can look. What is, I mean, you, you get angry and you just explode and you explode in public. And you're, it's just all out there and you kind of come back a little... Or, or you do something that you knew was wrong when you did it. You knew it was sin when you did it. You did it anyway. The word says your sin will find you out. Well, God wanted to purge that from you and he told somebody or somehow it came out. How do you, how do you respond to that? Condemnation, just, oh, I can't believe it's beat myself up. How do you respond to that? What do you do when, and every one of us, Christian or unchristian, you still practically live in a world that we talked about yesterday that the ambiguities are still here. There's still sin. We still sin. What do you do when that gets found out? Martin Luther has a just incredible quote I want to read. The Holy Spirit wants the godly to know their weakness and for this reason are disheartened to take comfort from the offense that comes from the account of the lapses among the most perfect patriarchs like Noah. In such instances, we should find proof that our own weakness and therefore bow down in humble confession, not only to ask forgiveness but also to hope for it. Being saved doesn't mean you're perfect. Saved doesn't mean sinless. 
It means you have the power to be sinless. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And God tells us that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is now in you. And we have the power to resist sin for the first time in our life. We have the ability to say, no, this dishonors God and I am not going to do it. Before you were a believer, you didn't have the Holy Spirit. You have to follow your passions. You don't, there's nothing else there. Now, there's discipline and so on, but that's all how you're wired. You don't have the ability to actually stand up against something that tempts you and have the power for victory over that. As a Christian, you have that power, but being saved doesn't mean you're sinless. But this is what it means. When that, is, when that sin is exposed, we can admit it and say, you know what? I blew it. That's being having that broken heart that makes us, uh, it says, disheartened. Because when we know that we're a sinner, when we do sin, it forces us to confess that to God and restore that relationship. It brings us to that place. But if I'm not allowed to sin, because I'm a Christian and I, I'm kind of straight-laced and, and I don't do anything wrong, well, then when you find out that you do do something wrong, what happens? You can't admit it. You can't find forgiveness because... You're, you're trying to hide everything because you're perfect. And so these examples that God puts in, the, in, in Scripture for us, later on when we actually read this Romans 15, 4 verse, we can see these, these examples and we can take heart and have hope. And have hope because that should drive us to seek forgiveness from God. Now, there's another, another piece to this. I first asked, what is it? How do you accept when, when, when your sin is exposed... Do you seek forgiveness or do you just try and make up excuses and, 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 and don't let that be part of you? Do you confess and move on? But how about the other side of that? What about you walk into the tent of somebody else and they're upside down drunk with their clothes off? What do you do with that information? When you go in and you're, you, God has exposed to you somebody else's sin, do you go home and say, Psst, honey, come here. You aren't going to believe this. I went into so-and-so's tent and he was upside down drunk. He's hilarious. And just kind of pass that sin all over the place? Or do you go, oh, I got to cover my brother here. Matthew 18, you go to him quietly and you tell him, brother, there's a sin here. And it says, those that, if you find somebody in sin, go to him. Those of you who are gent- and gently, those of you who are spiritual, and gently restore that brother. And if he's restored, you've won your brother back. But you've covered it. We have in uh, first. Peter 4 something, 4, 8. It says, love covers a multitude of sin. When you walk into somebody else's tent, this is figuratively, you walk into somebody else's tent and you see that that person's life is upside down. You see that that person's life is just contaminated in whatever was sin. What do you do with that? Does the love for that person and the desire to see that person drawn back into fellowship with God force you to cover that sin, force you to go and pray with that person and try and restore that person back to spiritual health, spiritual sobriety? Or do you just run out and tell your brother, you're not going to believe what dad looks like right now? (laughs) Now that sounds funny in this context, but if you think through your last week or two, as body members of the church of Jesus Christ, God uses each one of us as imperfect as we might be, to help our brothers and sisters grow up in Christ. And so if God needs to expose sin, He very well may do it with you. 
he very well may tell you or have you see or make you know something somehow about another brother or another sister in full confidence that you are going to cover that person's sin with love. And I don't, when I mean cover, I don't mean pretend like it didn't happen. I mean that you go to him and you see your brother or your sister restored. So like I said, that wasn't the focus of the message, but here we go. We're moving on. All right. We don't have to keep reading. What did Ham do? He walked in. He saw his father's nakedness. He went out. He told his brothers. His brothers went, whoa. And they took a garment. They placed it on their shoulders. They walked backwards. They covered their father. And they walked back out. Okay? That's the picture that you have. Noah wakes up. Finds out what his son did. Now, there's some word pieces here that we just want to do a little word study. If you look in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18 uses the same, the same root words for saw his nakedness. And in Leviticus 18, depending on your translation, it actually talks about being sexually immoral with them. And so there's this question, did Ham actually go in and violate his father? Ooh, that's strange. Or did he just see him and leave and make fun of him? We know this. He got cursed for going out and telling everyone and exposing his father's nakedness. That's what he got cursed for later that we're going to read. But whether or not there was some kind of immorality past just going and making fun of him, it's kind of tough to tell. They translate it everywhere. Ham saw his father's nakedness. But then when you go to Leviticus 18, you see that this, when they talk about the Canaanites and all their sexual immorality, they use this same word, but now it's translated as an immoral act. In fact, they, in the ESV, it actually translates it, they uncovered their nakedness. When they're talking about incest, they translate it that way. So there's a little word thing that, that's going on here a little bit. We don't know, or I don't know, whether or not he actually violated his father or whether uh, this is just disrespecting his father. But that doesn't really matter because it's not even the single sin of Ham that's in question here. God didn't have Noah pronounce this prophetic curse over him because he made a mistake because he had some lapse of judgment ham has this this attitude this this whole thing then that that must god had already seen going forward because interestingly let's actually read the curse here when noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him he said cursed be canaan a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Did you catch that? Noah wakes up from his wine and goes out and curses his son. You see how the point of this is not about Noah and his wine? There's no mention whatsoever, really, of Noah and his wine. It's just he woke up from it and he went out and bam, he puts focus where this text is meant to be focused, right here. What Ham, not, not only Ham, but interesting, who did he curse? Wait a minute, let's read that again. Noah woke up from his wine, found out what his youngest son, that's Ham, had done to him. And he said, cursed be Canaan. He cursed 
the youngest son of Ham. He did not curse Ham. He cursed his youngest son. Do we want to ponder that for an hour? Why did he do that? We all know that a curse is not a curse unless God backs it. A blessing is not a blessing unless God backs it. These, these blessings and curses are really almost prophetic utterances of, of men in their families saying, here's what's going forward. It's, it's almost, as, if you will, exposing God's plan in this family tree. As we see through this family tree, which direction it goes, and you can come up and look at that, where God is handing the baton to the next people that are going to take his witness to the rest of the world. And so Noah's doing the same thing here. He's uttering a prophetic message over his family, essentially. And so he can look down there and say, Canaan is just like him. And he sees what's going forward and God shows him that. And so he sends out, he, he utters this prophecy over Canaan, not over Ham. That's really interesting to me. Well, why else might he have done it? Remember what Genesis is, when it was written, and who it was written to. We got a bunch of Israelites wandering around in the desert, right? And they're about to go into the land of Canaan. They're about to walk into the land of Canaan where there's giants. There's all of these people that, oh, we can't take them. Yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey, and it's a wonderful place, and it's the promised land that God is going to give us, and all of these things, but we can't take it because there's Nephilim, there's giants, there's mighty men there. We can't take it. And Moses says, wait, 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 wait. Those people are cursed by God to be servants of the descendants of Shem, who you are. All right, so history lesson here. Shem is the father eventually of Abraham, the the, the Israelite nation. And so these people know that. And so when he says the the Canaanites are cursed and they're supposed to serve Shem, they know right away it's these people whose land we're about to go and conquer that God's telling us to take. They're cursed by God to serve us in it doesn't matter how big they are, how much iron they have, if they've invented dynamite or not. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. They're cursed by God. Well, well, the last one I didn't mention is Japheth. Who is he? We have Ham, the father of the Canaanites, all the ites that you might consider the bad guys. The Amorites, the Alamakites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the... I mean, all the Itesites that are about to be conquered by the Israeli nation. Those all come from Ham. Every one of them. Okay? They're not all wiped out. From Shem, you have the Israelites. And some others. Japheth, interestingly, in uh, uh, Genesis 10, 5... Not in ESV, but in King James, it actually says they're the Gentiles, the shoreline people, but it uses the word Gentiles there. And so Japheth, we have the line, essentially the Europeans, essentially us. We're of that line, the Gentiles. And so one thing that I just hold in your mind for a minute, it says that us would dwell in the tents of Shem, the Israelites. And know that this is some kind of prophetic utterance. So hold on to that thought for a minute as we develop that. We'll come back to the dwelling, us dwelling in the tents. 
as we go through history, though, what happens? Now, remember, the whole thing here is planned. God is executing a plan. Okay? God is executing a plan. But as we look at the line of Ham, here's who we get. We get Babylon. Babel. One of his kids' name is Egypt. Guess where he started. <laughs> okay? We have Egypt. We have the most powerful kingdoms on the planet. And who is it that were serving whom in Egypt? When the Israelites were delivered, where did they come from? Dear, sorry, that was kind of rhetorical, wasn't it? They came from Egypt. The Israelites were servants of Ham's descendants. Anytime God wanted to discipline the Israelites, he sent them to places like Babylon. And all the way through, you have looking like this curse isn't coming about. Because Ham's descendants are the ones that are the masters, and Israel are the slaves. How is that working? One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73 says this, You know what? I was looking at the wealth and all the stuff of the rich, and my foot almost slipped. Because I was looking through things experientially as I see them. With my wisdom, my knowledge, I'm looking at how things are, and I almost lost my faith. That's Psalm 73. But it says this. It says, you know what? There's no question that God is the God of Israel because later on I looked. I looked at the life. I looked at the, the conclusion, the destiny of these people. I saw where they would be in the end. And where are they going to be? They're going to be in a place that's godless, hopeless, salvationless. And my faith was restored to me. Psalm 73. It's a fantastic psalm when you, when you kind of look around and go, wait a minute, God is my God, but yet I'm driving a Pinto and that guy's driving a Cadillac and he hates God. Psalm 73 says, you know what, I, my foot almost slipped because I kept seeing all the great stuff that these people have. Well, the same thing here. Prosperity in Babylon and in Egypt, that's not an indicator of blessedness. And nor is a hard time an indicator of wretchedness. God's plan is being executed. And when the word says, do not lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge him, God, in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Don't always be trying to interpret everything you see in history or even in today to try and figure out what God's plan is. God tells you what his plan is. We know. And God is executing that plan regardless of what you think your experience is. God's plan is not inhibited by your experience or your knowledge. Joshua 9.23 then. Right before Joshua 9.23 comes out, here's what happened. They've gone into Canaan. They've conquered, conquered, conquered. They've decimated all of these people. And then the fear of the Israelites come upon this group and they, they, they put on rags and they come into Joshua and say, Oh, we've sojourned so far. We've been days on the road and they're all stinky and their bread is moldy and all that. And so Joshua looks at them and their people look at them and go, Wow, these people have come from a long way. <laughs> but really they were just a little ways down the road. And the people said, oh, make a, tr- make a treaty with us so that you won't come and conquer us because the fear of you is in the land. And, and, and Joshua, without consulting God, says, oh, okay, that's fine. You're so far away. It doesn't even matter. Even your camels look tired. 
And so they make this treaty with them. Well, it happens that they're Canaanites from right there. So Joshua makes this pronouncement. He says, okay, because I said we have this treaty, I'm not going to wipe you out and kill you all, which is what I should have done. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to force you into being the servants of the Israelites. So this curse that is pronounced here on Canaan is realized in Joshua 9.23, where he says, you're cursed, you're now going to carry our wood, and you're now our servants. And we see that in Joshua 9.23. About 1,500 years after this curse, there are no more Canaanites. They're just gone. Okay? Now, what's the point? At the end, we see verse 20. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Verse 29, all the days of Noah were 950 and he died. Righteous Noah, 950 years. Mortality still here. He dies. But the entire story of the flood is really a story about hope. It's trusting in God's plan. Now, Noah didn't know this. Noah didn't know when God said, Noah, I need you to build an ark and put the animals on it. He did not know a curse was coming on one of his sons, that Israel was going to take over the land of Canaan and all these. He did not know that. We have this thing called progressive revelation. As as we move forward, God reveals more about himself and more about what his plan is. We do know. When we sit here and read it, we know this entire thing from start to finish. We know that Noah got called and we know all these things that happened. We see God executing this plan in real time. And what should that do for us? If you would, turn to Romans 15.4 and let's read this together because this is one you may want to put on your wall somewhere. Romans 15.4. And I'll give you a second. I cheated. I had a bookmark. This is one worth committing to memory. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ. Why are these things written? That we might see what God's plan is and that we might have hope. Because even though we see, we have scripture, it's it's canonized, it's together, we can see God's heart, we can see God's plan, we have this great idea who God is, we still see through a mirror darkly, but that day will come when we see God face to face, and we will know as we're fully known. That's what's coming. But we're not there yet. And so we still need hope. We still need it when the word says to put our hope fully in the day that Christ is going to be revealed. There's some things that we still don't know. But as we look back through scripture and we see how meticulous God was at executing his plan, our hope should kind of get a little, ooh, whoa, is God really sovereign? Did God really pronounce this judgment here in 1500 years it came to here and in Joshua 9 it did this? Is God really that much in control? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. What's his plan? We all know. He's creating this remnant, right? He's saving people. He's using people to grow people. His church, he's going he's gonna to build his church. He's going to give it to his son. It's his bride. We know what's happening, but we don't know all the details. And so we have to hold on to hope. And scripture gives us that all the way through, that God is executing that plan so perfectly. Let's wrap up here. So, this is an interesting thing, and 
And I hope we don't pull too much allegory here. But when I read this, I just thought, wow, what a great way to wrap this up. Passion Week. Christ is being crucified. And remember we said at the very beginning, from Noah's loins, there are these three people, and all the earth is populated from these three people. When Christ is being crucified, Christ is from the line of Shem. And we can see that up on the chart. He came through the Israelites, right? Shem is the father of the Israelites, and they held the baton, and the Messiah came from that line. Jesus Christ came from Shem. As Christ was carrying his cross, they found a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross, who happens to be from the line of Ham. Oh, we're almost there. Who was it that actually went through with the workings of the crucifixion? Oh, they're the Western, they're the Romans, who happened to be from the line of Japheth. The entire Noahic family is represented here in the crucifixion of Christ. We're all there. And, and who is it? Who's responsible for that piece? The Israelites said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Right? So we have this full encompassing of humanity in this event. And when I read that, I just hadn't seen that before. And thought, wow. Because what's the point of this hope? The point of this hope is kind of like we're going to come back to heaven fest. If you take a minute, turn to Revelation chapter 7. And let's read that again. We know what God's plan is and we know how it's being executed. And we know as we're singing here, your blood has washed away our sins. The wrath of God is completely satisfied. God's plan was to send Christ incarnated in man and his blood is going to pay for God's wrath to restore the relationship that we have with him. That's his plan, and he's building his church. And one day, this is what it's going to look like. Get that in your mind. One day, when God's plan comes to fruition, and he has the bride of Christ, and we are with Christ, where there's no need for light, there's no shadows in his presence, as we sang earlier. All right, verse 7, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From Ham, some of them are left. Japheth, some of us are left. Or some of you might be. Which ones did I get to? And Israel and, and Shem. From every single nation, if you just picture that, Heaven Fest was a wonderful time. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. This is the culmination of this plan that we're hoping for. This is it. This is as we look through this, this is where things are going. This is what we hope for. The Bible says, put your hope fully on the day that Christ is going to be revealed when you will know just as you're known. Moreover, this is what they're doing. They have palm branches in their hands and they're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's God's plan 
And we can be encouraged in that because that, that's the hope. All of the nations that came from Noah, God is saving from every... In, in Revelation 5, 9, it says God is going to be saving people from every nation. Every nation. And you're going to see them all standing there before the throne of God one day. Doesn't matter which one they came from after Noah. God is saving people from every single nation. Let's pray. Lord God, I am I'm so thankful for your plan. And I'm so thankful that you called me even when I was your enemy and restored me to yourself. God, we do thank you that you sent Jesus and his blood is paid for our sin. And God, I thank you that even though it's maybe outside of our realm of understanding even, that you are going to save people from every tribe, every nation. And one day, it's going to sound like rushing water as we look around and see the multitudes worshiping you for who you are in reality. God, would you instill in each one of us that hope? Instill in each one of us the vision moving forward that we just so desire to know you that much more and, and to be in that sea of people worshiping you. God, I want to pray for those people today that don't know you, that won't be in that sea of people. God, I pray that you would impress upon them yourself, impress upon them that you have provided for them the payment for their sin. And God, that you desire to bring them back to you. God, would you have mercy on us? I pray that you would save us. In Jesus' name, amen.